Where, where do we look for the living Christ in the land of the living? Where do we look for the living Christ in the land of the living? That was the question. That was the question that we ended with last week as we celebrated Easter Sunday, the Sunday of resurrection. And it is a question that I want to invite us to carry with us throughout this new season of the liturgical calendar and this new series that we have started here in OIC. Now, for those of you who are, are new, and new to OIC and maybe don't know this, we, we usually have these series of preachings with themes. And since before Christmas, we have decided to follow the liturgical calendar a bit closer. We have always followed it sort of loosely, so we have some seasons of the year in which we, you know, we, have, we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate Easter, we celebrate Pentecost. But we decided to look a bit closer to this. And the liturgical calendar is a cyclical calendar that churches throughout the world and throughout the years and the ages have followed with some variations, but still again and again. And it is a calendar that takes us through seasons of the year, through the story and through the things that it does to us. And we started with the Advent season in preparation for Christmas. We went through the cult season of Epiphany. And now... We go into the season of Easter. And there's a particular, uh, there's something about the season of Easter that I mentioned last week, but I have found this very interesting, is that liturgically and, and historically, the season of Easter is, has something a bit different from the other seasons. Every season in the liturgical calendar has launches, and then it has a number of Sundays. So you get Epiphany, for instance, which was one of the last Sundays. We have what is called the Feast of Epiphany, and then you have the second Sunday after Epiphany, the third Sunday after Epiphany, the fourth Sunday after Epiphany, and so on, right? When we come to Easter, we have Easter Sunday, and then we have second Easter Sunday, and then we have third Easter Sunday, and the idea is that every Sunday is an Easter Sunday, as if this was one Big celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why is that? Not, I mean, maybe you're just nerdy like me and you find that interesting. But why is that important? Why is that interesting? Well, because it is a, a way, a liturgical way of emphasizing a theological and a spiritual truth that we believe in, which is that we are in the time of the resurrection. The resurrection isn't something that just happens on that Sunday and then we're done with, but it is the presence of the risen, resurrected Jesus Christ that we continue to celebrate and live in to this very day. And here in OIC, our series now, for the season of Easter, we have called it Land of the Living. There you go, it's there. Land of the Living. And the question we brought from last Sunday was this one, right? Where do we look for the living Christ in the land of the living? And we bring the question with us out from the grave. Out of the grave where Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and a few other women had gone on that Sunday early in the morning, had gone to tend to the body of the crucified Jesus Christ, and also to tend to their own grief. 
and they go to the grave as soon as the Sabbath releases them to go. As Jewish women, they respected the, the, the Sabbath, the day of rest, used it to prepare spices, prepare their heart for doing what you would do as a Jewish woman when somebody you love dies. You go to embalm and to care for the body. And as soon as the sun rises, they go to the tomb. They go to care for, uh, to tend to the body of, of Christ and to tend to their own grief, to process it. Isn't that what very often our rituals of burial and bereavement are about? They're about us also processing. But at that place, that place of memory and that place of grief, they are greeted with the unsettling question, why do you look for the living among the dead? And the question is unsettling because it won't allow us to settle on a final chapter of Jesus. It won't allow us to close the story. The Christ that emerges from the tomb is a living Christ. And a living Christ is a Christ that must be allowed to live. Even as we follow him with all these memories of the Christ that walked the roads of Galilee, these memories that have been passed down through generations, these memories that were alive in the minds and the hearts of these women and of the disciples that doubted them at first, even as we carry these memories, we also carry the wonder of a Christ that is living and that lives beyond those. So where do we look for the living Christ and the land of the living? Well, not only in the pages of a book or in the symbols of our religious celebrations, but in the land of the living. This Christ that the scriptures insist resurrects in a body and walks around Galilee. We could make the question a bit differently. We could ask, what does it look like to look for the living Christ and the land of the living? And making the question that way is helpful because it allows us for, for more than one answer in a way, right? Jesus isn't playing hide and seek. And when we find him, and we know where, right? It's obviously at Hasle Shirka every Sunday at 4 p.m. Everybody knows that, right? <laughs> and when we find it, then we win the game, right? That's, that's, not, that's not it. And I'm being ironic, by the way, right? Just making it clear in case people can't hear you laughing in the podcast. I'm being ironic. <laughs> this isn't about finding the right place. And it really isn't about finding in the sense that you would find a hidden treasure and then you have that. You have that package and you keep it and you don't touch it, right? Because again, this is the living Christ we are talking about. This is the living movement of his living spirit. So we cannot and really should not lock him down. 
So it is about seeking more than it is about finding in that sense. But still, we have been insisting this is about Christ's presence in the land of the living, witnessed to in the pages of the scriptures. So perhaps we still need that I, that sensibility, that hope, that intention of finding him somewhere at some time. So where do we look for the living Christ in the land of the living? Peter, the apostle Peter, apparently, goes looking for Jesus somewhere in the middle of the lake or the Sea of Galilee. Peter goes fishing. And a bunch of Jesus' disciple buddies, they go with him. They go fishing. And we find a story in the gospel according to St. John, chapter 21. And I'll read from verses 1 to 14. John 21, from 1 to 14, I read from the NIV. And if it's different there, it's my fault. I forgot to tell them the version. Uh, I read from the NIV. John 21, from verse 1 to 14. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathanael from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. Early in the morning, sorry, he called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So Peter goes fishing. And a lot has been speculated about why Peter went fishing. And a lot has been discussed about this story that tells us that Peter went fishing. Uh, The discussions around the story have mostly to do with what is more or less 
consensus in scholarly opinion that chapter 21 of the gospel according to St. John is a, a later edition, meaning that it's not part of the first version of the gospel. There's a closure in chapter 20, and then it sort of begins again in a weird way. Now, be that as it may, and I don't want to go into all the discussions around this, it's also worth noting that it's also scholarly consensus that whenever, where, whenever this chapter was added, if it was added or not, and therefore the story, it was included in the Gospel of John very, very early in the story of the church and of this Gospel. So much so that even the oldest manuscripts that we have have this chapter in it. What this means, for those of us who are not that interested in the scholarly dimension of it, is that this is a story that the followers of Jesus from the very beginning, from the very beginning, found worth keeping and passing on and telling. This was a story that spoke to them and of them and did something to the community. And what is also interesting is that it's one more story of a meeting with the resurrected Christ in what was already by the end of chapter 20, one of the gospels with most stories of meeting with the risen Jesus Christ. And in this story, Peter goes fishing. And why did he go fishing? And this also has been much discussed. And perhaps you've heard preachings on this, right? Much of it has to do with the fact that Peter was originally a fisherman when Jesus called him to follow him and his disciples. So there's something a bit weird about him going back to the boat. And that's often how it's thought about. He goes back to something that was from before Jesus, right? So many have interpreted this story as Peter somehow wanting to go back to his old life, or maybe flirting with giving up on the whole disciple thing, or maybe thinking this is, not, this is not financially viable, so I'll go back to fishing. Stuff like that, right? The truth is we don't know. We don't know why Peter went fishing. The, the biblical narrative does not tell us why he went fishing. There's a few things that the biblical narrative does tell us, though. It does tell us that he went fishing. It does tell us that this was after they had already witnessed the presence of the risen Jesus Christ. And that's an important detail that sometimes we forget. This is not while Peter is still figuring out what to do with the crucified Jesus Christ. This is after, as the story goes in the Gospel of John, he, they had already met and spent time with the resurrected Jesus Christ. And it does tell us also that he didn't go alone. You often make the story about Peter, right? But there's a bunch of them there. They're together. Again, we don't really know. But when I read these last chapters of the Gospel of John, I sometimes think that maybe just, maybe Peter just needed to sort things out. Sort his ideas out. Like these had been some really intense weeks. He had seen Jesus crucified. He had gone through the emotional roller coaster of denying his closest friend and master. He had seen the violence of the crucifixion. He had hidden fear. He had heard the stories 
that Jesus was alive and how do you even believe in something like that? Then he had met the resurrected Christ, but the resurrected Christ is gone. What do you, have you never done that? Crazy week at work at everything and you're, you just need to go walk or something. Right? Do a manual task. Something to help you sort things out. So Peter goes to do a task that he was familiar with together with people that he trusted. And it seems to me a very natural thing to do. Like, what do we do now? We don't really know. I need it. I don't know. Let's go fishing, guys. Let's go fishing. And then they go. And they're together there in this. Together, which is also interesting, with other people. They might have been fish or not, but they're not the original crew of Peter's fishing boat. They're the crew that follow Jesus. <laughs> so they're doing this thing together. And they're like, okay, I don't know. Well, let's go fishing. But as familiar as fishing was for Peter, and at least some of his friends on that boat, that turned out to be an off night. No fishes, maybe no answers and no new insights. Again, I don't know, maybe this is when, you know, you're like, I need, I need a break, I'm going to go for a walk, and it starts raining. <laughs> it just didn't quite work out. But then there is Jesus on the seashore. There is the resurrected Jesus Christ telling them to do more of what they had already been doing. It's interesting, right? Jesus doesn't tell them, what are y'all doing fishing? No, he says, okay, throw the net on the other side. Let's see how that goes. And then they get fish. <laughs> and they come to the shore. Now I want to spend a, a minute to talk about the miracle. It's interesting because this miracle shows elsewhere in one of the other gospels, not after the resurrection. John or the tradition of John or whatever Post it here after the resurrection. And it's easy to get caught up in a miracle. I think, oh, this is, you know, wow, something big is happening here. But the interesting thing is that the, the disciples don't seem to be very caught up in a miracle. They're like doing their thing, you know, they're pushing the fish. But Peter, at least, is, he wants to go there and see what Jesus in the shore is all about. He's not that worried about it. Now, the miracle, it serves a literary purpose. In, in the context and in the writing of the Gospel of John, right, the miracle reaffirms for the reader that this is indeed Christ. And there's a line with what John calls the signs in the Gospel, the signs that point to him being, in fact, God, the I am, God with us. So it makes a connection and it tells us, yes, this person on the shore is in fact the resurrected, risen Jesus Christ in power. So it serves a literary purpose in that sense. But the story doesn't lead to the miracle. It doesn't focus on a miracle. Where does the story lead us to? It leads us to some coals on the beach that already have quite independently of the miracle in a way, already have some bread and have some fish. Breakfast after a hard night work, 
And Jesus says, let's sit around the fire. Let's eat. Let's have breakfast together. And that is where the communion, the fellowship, the presence with the living Christ happens. Not in the number of fish, not in the, in the meal. And sitting around the fire and eating together. So the miracle may serve the literary purpose of reaffirming that the resurrected Jesus Christ is still divine and has divine power, but the communion with Jesus is in one of the most simple and ordinary things of life. And, again, this fellowship with Christ is with the community. We can't forget, Peter is not alone. They have been trying to figure out about this Jesus that had been with them, and now they're there. They're sitting around the fire together. There's another very interesting thing about this story, and which is in fact a pattern uh, of the resurrection stories. And that is this weird thing that they don't recognize Jesus at first. And in this story, we can be like, oh, but you know, it's, uh, he's on the shore, they're on the sea, maybe it's hard to see. Maybe the wind is making weird noises. They don't recognize his voice. And we make up. But this isn't the only place this shows up. This keeps on showing up in resurrection stories. Mary Magdalene meets him in the garden and thinks he's the gardener. And then we go like, oh, it's her tears and stuff. Oh, yeah, but it's repeating. The disciples on the way to Emmaus walk for miles with Jesus and don't recognize him until he breaks the bread. Now, exactly what we do with this in each of these stories, we can go around, but there's something here about the resurrected Jesus not being an obvious presence. He's not recognized at first. And I think that's a very interesting thing to consider, isn't it? The glorified, death-defeating Jesus isn't necessarily an obvious presence to recognize. Whether that is due to some veil of our own perception or some withholding of God's revelation for some reason, the theme is there throughout these resurrection stories. And when he does make himself recognizable, he is seen stepping into these very local, relational, everyday kind of experience. It's not the shining glory, it is the breaking of the bread, it is the meal around the fire, it is the meal in the kitchen of the disciples of Emmaus, it is the hidden room in the upper room where the disciples are afraid and Jesus says, no, I'm here, see, this is my body, here, it's hurt, remember, yeah, let's, give me some fish, let me show you, I'm here. That's when the sense of the presence of Jesus is revealed. And then there's this thing, isn't there, that the resurrected body of Jesus is a wounded body. It is a body with scars and it is a body that eats fish and bread. 
And that does something to us. And I think sometimes, perhaps, we're, we become a bit uncomfortable with this idea because it's a lot easier to place the resurrected Jesus in the future, right? And imagine some kind of big day in which it all comes up and everything is renewed. And sure, we hope for that, but we push this living Jesus to the end of times. Because then we don't have to necessarily deal with not knowing what to do with the presence of the living Christ here among us. But when this living Jesus Christ is a wounded, eating body, walking around the, among the disciples, even before his ascension, of course, but suddenly this hope of the new life that emerges from the tomb is a hope for now. Suddenly this thereafter of the redemption of God is a hereafter from the tomb. And that's where, that's when we are, isn't it? Christ is the beginning and the end of the eschaton, of the end. And this is going on now while we roam this world and this existence. And if that is the case, then it is good news and it is relevant that Jesus' resurrected body is as it is. Because it means that hope can be hoped for the now and the thereafter. It means that life can be desired and fought for and thirsted for and now and for the thereafter. It means that this resurrected Christ understands, knows, cares, and is close to the reality of our broken, wounded Sweating bodies that bleed, that hurt, that get hungry, that get frustrated, that get depressed, that feel joy. And finally, there's something else that this story does. And John loves doing this. He loves revisiting stories with new meaning. That's how he starts the gospel, isn't it? He takes the story of creation and he puts Jesus in it. And that changes everything. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. The Word was God. And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And the whole language brings you to the poetry of the creation narrative, puts Jesus there, and suddenly it all opens up. And now, John brings us Jesus, or John brings us Peter, the fisherman, fishing on his boat, being called by Christ to the shore to sit around, break bread. And from here, we'll talk about this another Sunday, we have Jesus talking to Peter about shepherding his sheep. And it's a new calling story. So here Peter again is being called to follow Jesus, but now he is being called to follow the resurrected Jesus Christ.
And what that does is it tells us that we can follow the resurrected Jesus Christ. That the following Jesus for Peter didn't end with the death of Jesus. That this thing of thirsting and walking the roads of Galilee in expectation of what God might do and what the presence of the Messiah does to the realities in which it walks, that that possibility continues as we follow the resurrected Jesus Christ. It means that we can follow the living Christ in the land of the living. It's a new story of calling that is not just the story of yesterday, but can be a story of today. Because that's what these post-resurrection stories do, isn't it? Beyond the tomb, where Christ emerges and life insists in being, there's us. It's when the story opens up and continues and refuses to be closed. The whole language of the spirit Go straight into that. I'm going to be here to the end of the ages. Hadn't he said that already? And now, Peter, trying to sort things out, of course. Trying to live life, of course. Finds that Jesus is still calling him to follow him, to find him in stuff like sharing meal with dear people, breaking bread, sharing stuff. The resurrected Jesus Christ won't let us Keep his story in the grave. Keep his presence in our books. Keep his memories in our songs. Unless all of those speak to and towards the places where we have fellowship with him. And all of those stuff can be like worthless miracles if they don't lead us to sit around the meal, the fire with Jesus, with people. It's a great story to tell. It's a lot of fish to count. It's not, that's not where Jesus is leading us, is it? What does it look like to follow the living Christ in the land of the living? I hope we don't answer it. I hope we live into it. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you that you may know that he is gracious towards you. May the Lord turn his face towards each and every one of you on this day and tomorrow 
and every day hereafter that he may bring you of his peace. So go in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Serve each other. Serve the world. Serve the Lord joyfully. Amen.